At the very moment that signs suggest that the U.S. economy is headed for a slowdown, the Federal Reserve is poised to begin raising interest rates that will slow the economy further. Are we headed towards a new era of stagflation that cursed the U.S. economy in the 1970s? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from pandemics or itself. There is also a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you. Professor Wolf, when I was arriving in New York City earlier today from Washington, D.C., I hadn't been here in a couple of weeks. I couldn't but help note that the activity on the street, at least in this area just south of Times Square, is measurably smaller than it was just a couple of weeks ago. And of course, that's a sign of the impact of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. There are lots of indications that the economy is not stable. Even the businesses that thought they were sort of back on their feet or perhaps on their feet, many of them are closing. At the same time, we have a very stubborn, high and increasing rate of inflation, meaning prices are going up. Workers' wages have gone up by about 4% in the last year, but inflation is at 7% officially. And in some commodities, the ones that you know people rely on, working class folks rely on, I can tell you from going to the supermarket that the price of food isn't 7% higher than it was a year ago. It's more like 10% or 11%. Anyway, if you don't have a 7% wage increase, when prices have gone up 7%, that means you actually have less money in your pocket. And at the same time, the Federal Reserve is talking about ending quantitative easing or phasing it out. 
and at the same time contemplating two, maybe three interest rate hikes, which normally would be a signal that the Federal Reserve is trying to slow the economy. Anyway, very discordant signs or actions on the part of the government or the Federal Reserve. Yes, it's a sign of two realities about capitalism that need to be stated clearly at the beginning so we don't get lost in the weeds of analyzing the particular Fed policies of the moment. The first reality is that we live in a highly unstable economic system. If you think about it, people like us who pay attention to the economy, who focus on it, and I'm talking about myself as a professional economist, we're constantly watching instability. There's no nice word to say this. We're always worried either the economy is going to fall off in one direction into a recession or a depression, or it's going to zoom into crazy country with an inflation, or as you put it at the beginning, the horrible combination of both of these kinds of instabilities. We're always wondering where it will go next. If you take a step back, you ought to ask the question, which in a way is what Karl Marx did 150 years ago. Why do people stay with a system as unstable as this one has always been? The only difference is some of the downturns are relatively short and shallow, while other ones are long and deep. And likewise, some of the inflations don't last all that long and don't go all that high. And then there are those that are very long and very high. We're only talking about the amplitude, not the continuous disruption of our lives by this instability. If you lived with a person as unstable as this economic system, you probably would have moved out long ago. And that shouldn't be lost sight of that reality. And the other one is that this is an economic system that is not only unstable, but seems now to have worked its way into a total dead end. It's like those cartoons where a not-so-smart person is painting the floor of his or her apartment and realizes they've just painted themselves into a corner that they can't get out of. So let's explain how that's the case right here. We have an inflation, as you pointed out. No need for me to repeat it. There's no end of it in sight. The promises that it wouldn't happen are now shown to have been false. The promises that it wouldn't last more than a few months are now shown to have been false. And given two out of two being false, taking the word of the Federal Reserve or anyone else who claims to know how bad this will get and how long it will last is not worth paying attention to. The answer, the honest answer is, we don't know. What we do know, as you pointed out rightly, is that prices are going up at 7% and wages are going up at 4%. And that means you can't afford to buy as much this year with whatever your salary is than you could a year ago. We are falling behind. And that really is an extraordinary thing to impose on the working class, because they've just gone through two of the worst years in the history of this country. We have had at the same time 
one of the worst public health disasters in our history, together with one of the worst economic crashes of our capitalist system in our history, the second worst after only the Great Depression of the 1930s. And we had them both at the same time. To come out of two years like that and then to be smacked in the face with an inflation outrunning your wage increases, if you even got one, it's really the sign that this is a system that is simply saying to the mass of its people, we're not for you. We're not taking care of you. This isn't a system about you or for you. And the only real question is, why do you tolerate a system that works like this? Having said all that, what's the problem of the Federal Reserve? Well, here we go. The standard economics that I have taught all my life, and that was taught to me before that, is that if an economy is quote-unquote overheating, in the sense that prices are running away, which is where we are pretty much now, one of the things the Federal Reserve, our monetary authority, is supposed to do is to reduce the quantity of money in circulation and to raise interest rates. And the logic here is simple. If there's less money in circulation, well, then, you know, employers will be less likely to raise prices because there's not enough money out there to pay for raised prices. And the same logic applies to raising interest rates. The simple idea being the more expensive it is to borrow money, the less likely a businessman or woman will be to do that. They won't borrow to expand their business. Consumers won't borrow to buy more stuff because interest it makes it too expensive. And the whole economy will kind of slow down. That's the logic. But here is the problem because we have painted ourselves into that corner. The level of existing debt in the United States far exceeds now anything it has ever been in the history of the United States. Government debt, corporate debt, and household debt. And what that means is the minute you raise interest rates, if the Federal Reserve goes through with its plan to somewhere, but some people think it's going to be two interest rate hikes this year. Some people think it's going to be four, and the consensus is somewhere in between. If that happens, the interest charges confronted by the U.S. government and by the corporations and by the public will go up. It'll become more expensive to hold on to whatever debt, to service, as we call it, whatever debt you carry. And you know what is likely to happen then? Well, let's take corporations to start. Facing higher interest costs, because they have to pay back old debt and borrow new debt to replace the old debt, thereby having to pay the higher interest rates that are being raised by the Fed, they're likely to make the inflation worse that is to jack up their prices more to offset the rising interest costs they have if the Fed raises those rates. So that's your conundrum. That's your dead end. That's the corner you've painted yourself into. What's supposed to happen, namely that prices don't go up anymore, might in fact not happen. And what the worst imaginable outcome will be that you raise interest rates 
and in fact, prices go up. Has that happened in the past? You bet. Could it happen now? You bet. Does the Federal Reserve know whether it will happen? Honest answer, they don't know. I don't know, but they don't know either. And that's a perfectly logical and reasonable outcome. And I'm not the only one who fears it. After a three-day weekend when the stock market was closed on Monday of this week because of the Martin Luther King holiday, when the stock market opened on Tuesday of this week, we had a virtual crash on Wall Street, a tremendous drop. And the reason for that is very simple. The signs of the slowing down that you point to, coupled together with these rising interest rates, are scaring the pants off of investors who are wondering whether the American economy, over-indebted beyond any historical parallel, is really wobbling on the edge of who knows what. And if you have that thought, even if you don't think it's a high probability, you start bailing out of the stock market, selling off your shares because you don't want to be invested in an economy that's heading into the toilet. Yeah, I noticed the same thing that you noticed, and I'm sure all the people who are invested in stocks also noticed that by midday yesterday, the stock market had really tanked, not at all-time records, but very significant. And even you know when I got up yesterday morning on Tuesday morning and looked at the Wall Street Journal, it was filled with articles of foreboding. You know, the headlines are Omicron, inflation, drive down U.S. growth outlook, a bear market for many of the stocks. It's even worse than it appears. You know, all of that sort of reporting. And of course, the Wall Street Journal, it's, it is a general interest newspaper at this point, but it's not like the other general interest newspapers that really focus on finance and the banks and Wall Street. So obviously, they're not trying to scare their readers, but they themselves are obviously worried. I want to ask you something, Richard. You know, I talked to you about inflation in the 70s before, and you put your finger squarely on the button that said Vietnam War, deficit spending related to war spending right. as a principal, not the only cause, but a principal cause of the inflation, the, the indebtedness caused by the spending of a war. I mean, if you fight a war like World War II and you end up winning and you accrue all sorts of benefits at the end, which certainly the United States did at the end of World War II, it was in a very strong position in relationship both to its allies and its adversaries. And it reconstructed a new world order after World War II where, where the United States had you know, 5% or 4% of the world's population, but 50% of the world's product was being produced here in the United States. But if you spend lots of money and you lose the wars and the U.S. lost in Vietnam, it didn't succeed in Korea. It hasn't succeeded in Afghanistan. I mean, yes, it was able to topple the government in Grenada, a population of 250,000. And in Libya, it succeeded in toppling Gaddafi, a country of 5 million. But that too, that country too is in shambles. I mean, it's all of this military spending. What's the benefit? Well, of course, it subsidizes the the war contractors. It gives them guaranteed profits. So I guess it's good for them and their investors. But when you think about military spending today, like you have about 
the 1970s and the impact of the war in Southeast Asia. How impactful is war spending on this same level of debt and the cycle and the possibility of stagflation? And again, as you're pointing out, debt means something. I know some people in progressive economics think, well, you know, governments have a fiat currency. They can produce as much money as they want. They can just print it. It doesn't really matter. But what you're saying is it really does matter. Yes, an economy is a highly integrated, interconnected system. It's really a little bit like the human body. And as you learn, if you know anything about physical therapy or the way the body works, if you don't take care of all the different parts of your body, consciously or unconsciously, everything starts to unravel because the logic of your knee has something to do with your hips. Your hips have to do with your backbone. Your backbone has to do with how your organs interact with one another. The system is complexly interrelated. And you might want to believe that if you just focus on one thing, everything else will take care of itself. Or if you change one thing, it won't impact another. It simply never works that way. It's only a matter of time before you are taught by your body how wrong you have been. And the same works within the economy. If you actually take seriously some of the more extreme formulations of what's called modern monetary theory, then you think that the government can play with the money system, sort of like children play with that famous board game called Monopoly. That's simply not the case. If the government starts printing money, yes, it can do that up to a certain point in certain ways, but that will have effects, and those effects will ramify through the economy and create all kinds of other problems. And you may not want to see the connection of those other problems to what you're doing with the money supply. But the notion that there is a kind of a freebie here that you can do whatever you want and not have to worry about the ramifications, that's an attempt to deny the interconnectedness of everything else. And you will come to grief. Absolutely, you will come to grief. Now, in terms of the military spending now. Here's the way I would see it. President Biden signed off on the latest Defense Authorization Act. I have to say this word. Every time I say the word defense, I start to giggle. The United States is the most militarily engaged country in the world. We have military bases, I don't know, in 60, 70 countries. No other country in the world is as actively offensively engaged as the United States, whether it's in full-scale war like Afghanistan and Iraq or marginal wars like Libya and Syria, and yet it calls what its business defense. You know, the British even are more honest. They call it the War Department. At least they're putting it where it is. No, no, no. We, who are not in fact defending, but offending around the world. We have to call it a defense department. It's a psychological problem, as you can see. Anyway, that bill was remarkable. It was remarkable because not only is it immense, just basically shy of $800 billion, and that's only the public. We don't know what the secrets behind it are. We know they're there, but we don't know how big they are. But $800 billion dwarfs almost anything else this government does. And most of that goes to big corporations to produce big ticket items, 
tanks, planes, missiles, warships, and all of that. It's notable that it was an increase of 5% over last year. But even more notable than that was the portion of it that was given to soldiers. The only part that doesn't go to big companies making equipment is what goes to the soldiers who actually do the fighting. They got an increase, too, of 2.7%. Well, if the average increase is 5%, but the actual foot soldiers, 2 million or so of them, got only 2.7%, it means that the companies selling to the military got 7 8%, so that it averages out to 5 showing that the Defense Department makes sure to worsen the inequality in the United States. Because if the soldiers got 2.7% and inflation is currently running at 7%, then our soldiers will be markedly poorer this year than last because the military of this society chose to make them that way. There is no nice way to say, let alone to excuse it. And of course, with that much money going to the military, it puts all the conservatives, whether they're in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, in the position of saying, oh, gee, we can't borrow too much. And since we've already given the the military the lion's share, well, we won't be able to provide daycare for working moms or help lower the cost of a tuition in a community college or provide health care for people who need it. It's this amazing spectacle of a society unable to honestly face its problems, go to where the wealth is, tax the wealth, take care of the problems, and therefore not only make the mass of people better off, but to make those anxious, wealthy people less anxious because the country isn't tearing itself apart as they accumulate more wealth than they can spend anyway. Tuesday morning of this week, one of the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world, Microsoft, decided to spend, get ready, $70 billion to buy one of the biggest gaming corporations in the United States, Activision Blizzard by name. An immense deal that comes after Microsoft already purchased LinkedIn. You get the consolidation, the monopolization, the extremes of wealth and power at one end, and the desperation accumulating at the other, these are signs of a capitalism that doesn't work anymore, that has outlived its historical usefulness. Richard, I want to ask you about the character of the commodity that we will call military hardware. You think about a missile, a tank, a drone, a gun, a bullet, whatever, all of the different armaments that are paid for every year by U.S. taxpayers at this immense budgeting. I mean, almost, it's about $760 billion inside the Department of Defense so-called budget. But then when you look at the Department of Energy, Homeland Security, the real number is closer to a trillion. So about $10 trillion over 10 years. Now, I want to ask you about the character of a missile 
or a gun or a tank as a commodity. Because as Marx said in chapter one of Capital, all commodities have these two primary characteristics. One is that they have a use value, meaning they have something of utility. Otherwise, nobody will buy them. And secondly, so that's use value and also an exchange value, meaning the value or the exchange value of a commodity is measurable by the amount, the average amount of socially necessary labor that it took to actually produce that commodity. So commodities or the prices of commodities are not arbitrary. They do fluctuate, but they fluctuate up and down based on supply and demand, but around and anchored in the average amount of socially necessary labor. Okay, so commodities, use value, and an exchange value. But this commodity in particular, while it does have utility and thus has been purchased, doesn't really circulate as a commodity. Like when a tank or a missile or, you know, all of the armaments are built and there's like so much going on, including the the militarization of outer space right now, human beings can't actually use this stuff except in the time of war. So for a moment of, of death and destruction, yes, but otherwise, you know, you can't live in a tank, you can't eat a tank. I mean, what about this as a, a peculiar character of this kind of commodity? And does it have a corrosive impact on the larger economy? Well, you know, there are so many issues wrapped up in your question. It's kind of hard to know even where to start. What determines the use value of a tank is the government. It is the decision that we in this country make, and I would hope that libertarians and others who imagine that the government either is marginal or could or should be, take note of what I'm about to say. To give the government the power, we give them this money, the taxes, and so they become the determinant of use value. That's why tanks and bullets and planes and missiles are produced by capitalists, because somebody out there, and the somebody is the government, because we don't even permit private citizens in this country to buy tanks and missiles and nuclear weapons and all the rest. It's outlawed. So we literally create a situation where the government is deciding the use value, in this case, of somewhere between $800 billion and a trillion dollars. So a huge amount of our resources, land, water, iron, coal, you name it, is used to produce things whose value is determined by the government, not by private citizens who are expressly excluded. The government decides what is valuable and therefore what it will pay private capitalists to produce. Government is an enormous shaper, therefore, of the capitalist economy. The notion that the private sector is doing its stuff all on its own has never been true. The government has always been an enormous player, but with modern defense spending, it's more enormous than it has ever been, except in the minds of people who need to pretend that it could or it should be otherwise. And by the way, the government gets that power because capitalists want to protect their system and feel they need to do it in that way, which is why they support 
these defense budgets. I might point out to you that the defense budget this year is $25 billion larger than what President Biden asked for. He asked for an increase from last year. The senators and the members of Congress in this country outdo each other in doing even more to give the government even more of a say about the economy. So they gave more to defense than the president asked for. It boggles, literally, it it boggles the mind. And it means, of course, that our politics is also polluted. Why? Because if you have a defense establishment that enormous, it means it has a recruiting office, a proving ground, a testing ground, an army base, a naval base, military headquarters, storage facility. And if you add to that all of the companies whose entire product is bought by the military, then the military has its supporters strategically placed in every one of the 50 states. Supporters who are military personnel, who work in a military office or depot, or who work in a company that lives off the military. Those people, therefore, are a basis for voting and for supporting only those politicians who keep the money flowing to the business. The politicians make sure the money goes to the defense, and the defense makes sure that the people in the right district know who the friendly congressman or woman is. This is a system that is simply the absolute opposite of anything remotely like democracy. This is a vested interest which is powerfully shaping our society and which explains the uniformity of our politics and the endless growth of our military. We once had the great enemy, the Soviet Union. It's long gone. Our military gets bigger. The Soviet threat is gone. We have the terrorist threat. The terrorist threat begins to fade. We have China and we go back to Russia. It doesn't matter. You have to have the enemy in order to justify the whole game. It is a distortion of our economic system, the cost of which is counted, for example, in the fact that we are better prepared for the nuclear war we cannot win and have never fought, excepting dropping the bomb in Japan. We take care of all these weapons we probably can never use, but we couldn't spend the money to have in place the tests, the masks, the ventilators, and the hospitals needed to do with a COVID disaster that has already killed more Americans than both World Wars I and II combined. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, which we encourage everyone to get. It's just been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. Tomorrow we'll be back with the Real Story episode. We'll focus on China and its approach to COVID. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.